Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. have changed good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to indoor air quality radio iaq radio for friday january 16th 2009 this week episode 108 comes to you from studio b in beautiful coriopolis pennsylvania my name is joe hughes or radio joe and here with me in the studio is the z-man cliff slotnick always a pleasure and great to be back good day good to be back from our little uh, hiatus for the holidays also at the controls is uh the wingman chris boisel Good afternoon, gentlemen. Good day, Chris. Our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, is back with us also this week. He's home recuperating from that knee replacement. Let's see if we can't say hi to Dieter real quick. Oh, we got him muted. Good day, Dieter. Yep, I'm here, and I uh, did my exercises this morning, and it's coming along quite fine. Great, great. Uh, now we got to work work on your Larry voice. Sizes has nothing to do with the knee. <laughs> we'll bring you back at halftime, Dieter. Sure. All right. Thanks for joining us. Okay. Today's segments include the microband trivia question. We've got Tom Peter, who's a certified industrial hygienist remediation contractor with Insurance Restoration Services up in East Brunswick, New Jersey. We're going to have the Insurance Minute with Brian McFarlane. He's got an interesting uh, story for us today. And then we'll go back and uh, finish up with Tom. And then we've got the roundup. We'll bring Dieter in. I think Mr. Glenn Fellman's going to join us for the roundup, etc. Check out the IAQ Radio website when you get a chance. We do a blog after every show at iaqradio.com. Before we start, let's thank our sponsors. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. All right, looks like we've got a good group on the line here. For those Most of you know, to contact the show, you call 724-444-7444. Our show ID is 1547. All you have to do now is press the number 1 after that. And you can join the show. You can also download the show from our website, iaqradio.com, 
Follow the link that says go to the show or go to iTunes. We're getting a lot more downloads from iTunes these days as well. Don't forget you can get your IICRC continuing education credits or IAQ Council renewal credits by emailing me and requesting a quiz. My email is joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. We also enjoy those requests, suggestions. A lot more uh, guests are also talking to us, actually, by emailing me or cliffzlotnick at unsmoke.com. Those email addresses are also on the homepage at IAQ Radio. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for this week's microband trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Congratulations go out to Sharon Kramer for answering trivia question number 107. The correct answer to that question was idiopathic pulmonary hemosiderosis, or IPH. The microband trivia question for Friday, January 16th, 2009. What parties are material safety data sheets intended for? Back to you, Joe. All right. Very good. Today's guest on IAQ Radio is Thomas Peter. He is a Master of Science degree in Environmental and Occupational Health Science from New York Medical College, a Bachelor of Arts degree in Environmental Science from Purchase College, and an Associate of Science in Chemical Technology from Westchester College. Tom is also a certified industrial hygienist, and he is the health and safety manager at Insurance Restoration Specialists, Inc., Environmental Services Division, and has an extensive background in occupational, health and safety, public health issues, indoor air quality, and environmental compliance. Tom was working as a consultant for over 10 years with that exemplary knowledge in recognition, investigation, evaluation, testing, and control mitigation of occupational environmental hazards. He has moved on over to the remediation side of things. He has managed remediation projects for indoor contaminants, oil spills, tank closures, emergency response. He provides expert review and insurance claim oversight, and he does a uh, numerous different types of interesting indoor environmental quality remediation we're going to talk about today. He's also responsible for managing the health and safety program for IRS and has published numerous articles on occupational health and indoor air quality. Hello, Tom. We got a little music for you, Tom, then we'll get you unmuted. Expert. I want to be an expert. So I'm going to graduate school. Expert. I want to be an expert. So everyone will think I'm smart and cool. Expert, I want to be an expert, so I'll jump through all them. Right. Good day, Tom. Do we have you unmuted? Hello, Tom. Hey, Joe. How are you today? All right. Very good. Very good. We got you. Uh, let's start out by, uh, well, Cliff, I'm going to turn it over to you. To you. you, you had the first question. Tom, is holding your designation of certified industrial hygienist been a blessing to you or a curse? 
<laughs> That's a good question. In most, and I guess in most cases, it's a blessing. Um, it's something that I always pursued as a consultant when I was uh, working for another company to complete the CIH. And when I came aboard with a uh, restoration contractor, uh, IRS, I um, continued that pursuit and finished it off and, and passed the exam. And uh, it's been a blessing because uh, a lot of the consultants that I work with in our area um, recognize it, and it's just an added quality to our services. And um, being the health and safety manager for our company it certainly has its added value. And um, when I have to deal with a lot of difficult questions or problems in our industry, everything comes to me. <laughs> so I guess that's the downfall, I hear that you. I have to handle all the problems. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm curious, Tom, as a remediation contractor, do the consultants you're working with always know that you're a certified industrial hygienist as well? Um, most of them, because uh, I know most of them through my associations in New Jersey. Uh, there are a few that I don't know, and, and I don't come out right off the bat and say I'm a CIH. I usually, you know, play the role as a contractor, let the consultant do what they need to do and do what they're getting paid for, and that is um, to write a spec or, or dictate the scope of work on a project. So once once they get to know me and then they find out I'm a CIH, they, they feel more comfortable also. Okay. Cliff? Well, let's talk a little bit about something that occurs uh, this time of the year in your in your part of the country, Tom. What's a cl insurance claims phenomenon known as a puffback? Uh, yes, these are happening a lot as we speak right now. <laughs> it's basically a, a discharge of soot from a malfunctioning furnace. Um, uh, the soot contains uh, carbon, uh, petroleum-based particles, and these these things can happen and fill up a house with a light film of dust. And sometimes that dust is um, invisible, and you won't see it until you start wiping it. And um, you know, most of the time you can see it. You'll see it on the cold corners or the nails of the of the walls. And um, you'll see soot and smell it, obviously. And, and that, that's what the insurance companies would hire us to do or another remediation contractor to clean up the house and deodorize. So as a point of clarification, just for our listeners, typically uh, this type of furnace, uh, the fuel for it would be fuel oil, correct? Correct, fuel oil, okay. yes. Okay, Joe. Okay. It's really like from incomplete combustion and mm -hmm. it puffs. Well, what... What are the techniques that are effective in cleaning up and, and getting rid of any odors following this type of event, a puffback? Well, there's a lot of, there's a tested and proven methods. And um, if you go into a house and start wiping the walls down with a wet rag, that's just going to smear the, the soot around and you'll see it actually get worse in those areas. Um, the best way is actually to use a chemical sponge or natural rubber sponge like a huge eraser and you, you you wipe the walls down with that and that'll erase this the uh, soot from the walls um, you could use a combination of hand cleaning um, HEPA vacuuming um, for furniture you use uh, special maslin cloths or um, other other wipes and uh, a lot of times you'll use charcoal air scrubbers to remove particles from the air and then um, as a final measure, in some cases, not all cases, um, you do ozone treatment, 
and that's that's a proven method for smoke odor elimination. And then in most cases, uh, if there's a forced air system, we have to clean the ventilation systems as well. I understand, uh, and I really have personal knowledge, that once your firm was called upon to respond to a fire damage at a New Jersey fragrance company where the sprinkler system extinguished the fire and there was funny-looking and funny-smelling water in the parking lot, and uh, no one really wanted to do anything until you got there. Can you tell us a little bit about the particulars of that claim? Right. Um, that's where my credentials come in into these tricky projects and more complex projects. Uh, this is not a typical fire. You know, this is a fire that has, has uh, chemicals that are involved, and it could be spilled chemicals, and there's chemicals in the building or outside the building that require um, health and safety um, aspects where, you know, we would have to put together a health and safety plan, put together a scope of work on who's going to clean up this mess. Um, you can't just send a regular fire cleaning crew into something like this. You really need... Um, environmental technicians to be involved and um, you have to do like a hazard assessment of a facility like that to make sure uh, my workers are safe or whoever's doing the work that are safe handling cleaning and um, uh, wearing a proper PPE and so forth you know it's a very could be a very complex situation and we've worked in a lot of these situations with uh, chemical laboratories that had fires you know now you're dealing with a lot of chemicals there too so a lot of safety and issues involved. What, uh, what type of uh, sprinkler system do you recall on that particular job, what type of system it was, and, and what kind of issues that caused for you? I think it's a water. I, think, I believe it was a water sprinkler system. It was a, it was a water now system. Water. Then you have, and then you have all this water coming out and then mixing with all these chemicals. So now what do you do? You do an extraction of the water. And then how do you dispose of that water, and what does that water contain? You know, so that, that's that's very tricky too, as far as waste disposal and handling it. Yeah, in, in that particular situation, the, uh, the yeah the fire occurred in this fragrance manufacturing uh, facility, and there were a lot of dyes there. And you know the water's purple and green, oh, and okay. <laughs> you know they see the stuff, and you know it's glowing in the dark, and uh, people got pretty nervous. Oh, yeah. And plus, with all those fragrances, you know, fra fragrance can be pleasant as a single fragrance. But right. once you have a lot of fragrances mixed <laughs> together, it could smell pretty bad. Right, right, you know? for sure. What about this uh, job? I see a penicillin cleanup. I'm not sure exactly what that is. Mold remediators are commonly called upon to clean up penicillium, a species of fungi that have colonized a building. Can you tell our listeners about cleaning up a penicillin factory? Right. Well, penicillin is a um, antibiotic that's you know that's manufactured. Now we have an empty warehouse or factory that's going to be sold. Now they have this light film of dust all over this warehouse, and they can't sell this property because of the potential allergy or sensitivity of the future occupants. You know, uh, some people are highly allergic to penicillin, and um, so we were hired. To clean the entire factory from top to bottom, uh, we were had a consultant or IPA an independent party involved, and um, we put together a plan to clean the whole warehouse from top to bottom using lifts. We had uh, scissor lifts and boom lifts, and using primarily wet methods of um, using a foaming agent 
Um, it was, I believe, a microband microband product, so I can mention that. Oh, oh you appreciate sponsor. that. We're a sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay. I figured I can mention one product. Sure. Um, and we, it was like a foaming agent. We had to do a lot of hand cleaning and power washing to remove pretty much all the dust out of this warehouse. So this was... Now, a- this also... Yeah, go ahead. I'm just curious. They were just storing it there, or they were. This was also no. They manufactured made... it. Oh, they manufactured okay. it there. Yeah. Interesting. So and that could be a very sensitive issue. Somebody wants to use that building for something else, you know. And was there any kind of uh, post remediation verification or clearance on yes. the project? Okay. Yes, the consultant that was involved, they did sampling to confirm it was properly cleaned, and that's that's an added benefit for us too. And that protects us so um, that we have proof that it's been cleaned. I'm just cleaned. curious on that project. What type of sampling, do, if you recall, um, was it viable, non-viable, air sampling, wipe sampling, dust sampling? I mean, I, I believe it was wipe sampling, and I believe it was just um, identification of that compound. I'm not sure how the analysis was performed. Certainly, it wouldn't be um, viable because it's not something that would grow. It's just a um, a derivative of the penicillium mold. Okay. Okay. So you you were just yeah you were just dealing with the uh, byproduct. The powder. I guess. Correct. Yes. Yes. Okay. Interesting. Now the next thing we wanted to touch base on is a little bit on green cleaning. I know that's a big issue nowadays, and I sure I'm sure you're running into this with some of the insurance adjusters, etc. But let's start by, what is your definition of green cleaning? Well, it's a tricky question because it's coming up more and more these days. You know, um, my definition would be a non-hazardous, biodegradable product. Now, there's various forms of definitions out there. They say no VOCs, uh, no hazardous ingredients, um, something that's not harmful to the environment or inhabitants. You know, and that, that's going to be a topic that you could talk about for an hour <laughs> in some cases. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> but we're seeing this more often. When you go into somebody's house for a water cleanup or a fire or mold or whatever, and you see somebody has all these um, natural detergents and non-fragrance detergents in their house, we we right we know right away that these are green people. <laughs> right, right. And they, want, they don't want to use any chemicals in their house. Um but I've seen there's, now there's new product labels, people putting green stickers on all their products on the shelf saying their product's green. But uh, it's very tricky because a lot of these products are green, but they might contain like alcohols and ethylene glycol and all that, but they're still getting labeled as a green product. Well, there, so real, there really is no, there's, I'm sorry, there's really no standard for it. And, you know, what happens right. is, you know, you can put it in a green bottle, you can give it a name green, and a lot of times this is referred to as greenwashing, where people just paint their product with it to make it appear much safer than it is. Correct, right, right. Well, I'm curious, from, from your experience as far as using the, I know you do a lot of insurance work, um, Who's more concerned about the use of the green cleaning products, the owners of the property or the insurance adjusters? I believe it's the owners. You know, that those are the people that if, before we even go into the house or if they the first person to meet with the homeowner, the homeowners are going to say, we want to use safe products, green products in our house. And the insurance companies are 
pretty indifferent about this issue right now because um, it's not really affecting them unless there's a higher cost to something that, that has to be a green product. Uh, we've seen in a couple of cases where people are insisting that whatever we put back as far as building materials go, that they want green products installed in their house and also green paints and, and so forth, you know, low VOC or no VOC paints, you know. So these things are popping up more and more now. And as a restoration contractor, we have to look at new products as well. When when a homeowner requests a green product, we need to have one available to use. You know. Can you give me a, a, an example of like a, a homemade green product that a client maybe has ever asked you to use or that you've used oh, on yeah. a project? Oh, yes, yes. Um, I've had people ask us to use vinegar and water. Um, another Another has asked us to use a hydrogen peroxide solution, and those are two household products and safe products. You know, but actually, hydrogen peroxide, if it's not used properly, and also depending on the concentration, can be harmful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I was just—I was thinking when you said that. Well, hmm, that if the concentration is not right, I guess it could—it might not be considered green. I guess that's big, a big part of the problem. We're going to have yeah. uh, Bob Baker on. He's talking about. ASHRAE, I believe, is trying to put together some kind of standard on green cleaning, and um, we're going to have him on in about three or four weeks here to talk about it a little bit more. Uh, yeah, that'll be great. You know, Tom, New Jersey has this distinction, and I'm not sure whether they're whether it's true or not, as being the most contaminated state in the country in, in terms of the, <laughs> the soil uh, in the state. Uh, can you tell the listeners a little bit about what's involved in removing an underground fuel oil or, or gasoline tank? Well, there's a lot involved. Um, there's two differences, you know, there's distinct differences between the two. Um, the oil tanks are commonly found around people's houses for heating oil. And um, those are things that are, are, you know, items that are removed on a daily basis when, when people want them removed. Uh, they, they have to call for a mark out, permits, and, you know, they have to do excavation. they got to clean the tank. They get, the tanks have to be inspected by the town. Um, you have to make sure that the tank's not leaking. Now, if the tank is leaking, then you have a soil contamination issue that may need, that may, may need to be reported to your state. Um, then you have groundwater issues and so on. It could get complicated or it could be very simple. If the tank's not leaking, then it's comes out and you backfill with clean soil and you're done. But when it's leaking, it gets very complicated and then you get involved with um, state filing state reports and uh, doing additional sampling to make sure that there's no extensive contamination around the house or building. Now, when it comes to gasoline tanks, those are registered tanks with the state and they require more paperwork um, and more qualifications for removal and uh, more testing. And uh, those are typically commercial sites. And uh, I don't like to have that um, designation in New Jersey as <laughs> the most contaminated. <laughs> but I guess uh, you can't avoid that, you know, driving through the Meadowlands. People think that with all the refineries around. Right. But um, any state can have the same kind of conditions with um, backfills and landfills. And, uh, you know, northern Jersey, Jersey City has a lot of chromium problems because they dumped a lot of chromium backfill before there was any um, regulations. Now, now we're dealing with the contamination. So, what about uh, fuel oil spills? I mean, I 
I assume many of these occur indoors. Uh, you've got uh, fuel oil, and I know people have them in their garages or maybe in a basement for heating. What methods have you find have been successful for cleaning these up and, and deodorizing after you're done? Um, those can get pretty tricky. It depends on the house and where the oil is spilled. But it, like you said, it's commonly inside the house and inside uh, the basement areas where your, your tank is stored or the furnace is located. And um, the oil can get into the concrete, and it depends if there's a sump pump or, or any French drain. Then now you have a discharge to the environment. Um, but when it's inside the house, it's basically you're removing this source removal. Um, you're removing the as much uh, soft goods as possible. If there's sheetrock paneling or soap insulation, that all that all has to come out. Um, after you remove things, then you have to scrub with a degreaser um, to thoroughly uh, break, try to break down the remaining oils, and then uh, you could also do a drying, and then after that you could encapsulate or seal the surface. So like I said, something could get more complicated where it gets into the concrete. It depends on how deep. You could uh, scarify a floor to, to remove a surface layer, or in some cases you have to jackhammer floors out to get uh, get to the contaminated soil underneath the foundation. Tom, is there a certain, so, is there a certain point at which uh, a spill is reportable? to a governmental agency is there so many gallons or something like that that you have to report it do you know um i don't that's my familiar i'm not that familiar with the cutoff amounts but any any if you call the state up they would want to know if anything spilled into the environment basically if you have any kind of discharge to the soil or groundwater they want to know about it okay. and um they want to make sure it's cleaned up properly and you have to do the appropriate sampling of soil and, and groundwater. And in some cases, the air quality. Now, this is, this shows on air quality, and um, there's a New Jersey standard that requires air quality testing after oil spills. Now, that's on a case-by-case -case basis, and um, these samples would have to be collected using SUMA canisters, you know, using um, a TO-15 method or so to collect a broad spectrum of compounds that might be in the air that resulted from this oil spill, you know, petroleum products mm -hmm. in the air. Huh. Well, Tom, what we'd like to do is go to our halftime. We've got Brian McFarland. He's going to do the insurance minute. We want to uh, thank our sponsors again. And then when we come back, I want to go into some chemical sensitivity and uh, multiple chemical sensitivity type projects that you've worked on and maybe a little allergy and asthma type re remediation if you've done that. So let's uh, take a short break. Halftime. All right. Let's start by thanking our sponsors. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at J-O-N 
D-O-N.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you acquire about their products and or services. All right. And speaking of our sponsors, I believe we've got Brian McFarland on the line from Legends Environmental Insurance Services. Hello, Brian. Hello, Brian. Do we have you? We lost. Uh, can can you hear me? There you are. All right, we've got you, Brian. <laughs> we we both had to mute on. I, uh, you took me off, but I didn't take myself off. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. What's up today, Brian? Uh, today, guys, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the, the two different kinds of policy forms. They are claims made and occurrence. And uh, the, the the reason I want to talk about this is, you know, during these economic times, we have a lot of clients that are. Uh, have seen a downturn in their work, and you know they they really need to understand what type of uh, uh, insurance policy they have when they're making that decision uh, if they want to reduce coverage or you know in some instances want to cancel coverage, so they know what will happen to their past coverage. Um, again, uh, I'm going to start with those two types. One's called a current, and, and one one is uh, uh, called a claims made policy. Uh, it's kind of a broad definition of, uh, of a policy, but essentially on an occurrence form, which is the type of insurance policy, the insurance carrier that is insuring you for that policy period is always responsible for a claim that arises from that policy period. On a claims-made policy, the insurance carrier that is insuring you for that policy period is only responsible for a claim while they insure you during that policy period. Uh, so so you, you run some risk on a claims-made policy that if you do not continue coverage either with that carrier or another carrier that accepts the retroactive data that claims-made policy, that, that you can void all previous coverage, meaning that your work that was covered is no longer covered. Types of policies that are written on a claims-made basis uh, Typically, all errors and omissions, otherwise known as professional liability, is going to be on a claims-made basis. And a lot of your listeners have mold coverage, and all mold coverage is currently written on a claims-made basis. Uh, and it's, it's important to understand that uh, if, if it is on a claims-made form, that if you do adjust your coverage, that you need to make sure uh, that, that you're informed that that work may become excluded or, or void of coverage that you previously had coverage for. There are many things that an insurance carrier can do uh, to help companies that are struggling during these times. They can reduce your uh, projected revenue, which uh, would then reduce the total amount that you would owe to the insurance company, sometimes offsetting, meaning no more payments due. Uh, they could... Uh, extend the policy that is about to expire for a minimum amount of premium, decreasing the cost of the insurance uh, for a short period of time, uh, or, or even putting a tail coverage in so that you're able to keep those retroactive dates in place uh, uh, if, in fact, you uh, are going to cancel coverage altogether. So it's real, real important, uh, you know, in these times when, when companies are, uh, you know, trying to, to make ends meet that, you know, they're in good contact with their insurance agent and broker, and, and that they're, they're getting good advice. That's excellent, excellent advice, Brian. I have a, a comment and a question, actually. Um, I just got called to do some, uh, to talk to a lawyer, at least. I may go on to expert witness. We'll see. 
because a mold remediation contractor who also does some investigation got pulled into a, a case a couple years down the road after this project had uh, been completed. And from what, what I understand from what you just said is that there is no occurrence policy available for mold remediation right now? Well, well the way mold remediation is covered, Joe, is the, the general liability policy is likely on an occurrence form. Okay. Uh, but, but that could be claims made. Uh, you would certainly want that to be occurrence. Uh, but the contractor's pollution liability could be claims made or occurrence. But if it's an actual property damage or bodily injury claim associated with that mold, that, that, that's going to be on a specific coverage added back onto the policy. Uh, and all of that is on a claims made basis. Uh, so there, there isn't a carrier that's writing that on an occurrence form at this time. Okay, so obviously he's. So it really kept- depends. Yeah, it depends on the type of claim. I mean, if it's if it's a true mold claim, uh, then uh, certainly you know it's likely that that coverage is on a claim or was on a claims made basis. Uh, if if it's uh, if, if it's you know a lot of times when somebody's doing mold remediation uh, or even you know some assessment, a lot of the times the claims are general liability and not necessarily uh, going to be filed on the the pollution side. So it really depends on what type of claim that is. The, you know, I, I need a little bit more information. Okay, I see. I believe the the claim is they weren't able to sell the home for as much money because more mold was found down the road, and um, they felt the contractor should have found that, et cetera. It sounds like that might have fallen on the general liability side. Yeah, it's probably a property damage on the general liability side. Okay, very interesting. Well, thank you, Brian. We'll get you back in two weeks and if you can stick around for the uh, roundup at the end of the show we'd love to have you okay great i appreciate it guys always a pleasure let's go to dr dieter see if he has any comments or questions and hello dieter i heard one or two bars of beethoven there (laughs) that's your intro music Uh, yeah a couple of interesting things uh tom mentioned a uh a soot eraser and I, oh God, years ago used one of those after I tried a, 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 a in fact, it was an old uh, towel. I tell you one thing, those soot erasers work a heck of a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> they really do work. Mm-hmm. The other, I have a couple of other problems, and for which we probably will not find any, any good uh, uh, answers. And that is the thing, you come into a... a a house or in a place where there was a fire. There's thermal decomposition. What the heck is thermal decomposition in a chemistry laboratory? I mean, it can be anything. There are thousands and thousands of compounds there, and particularly after they fall off the lab table and react together, who knows what's there? So this is always going to be an incredibly difficult uh, problem. Think of it even uh, a much simpler I have a lot of oak in my house. My furniture, most of my furniture is made from oak. And I have a couple, there's one piece of oak. Well, I don't think of this as being toxic or hazardous material or what have you. But I mean, you burn that one and you get a heck of a lot of things out of there that you don't even dream of. So that is one of those things that you have to uh, be aware of when you do fire restoration. What the heck is that stuff? 
what do you do with the stuff that you wash off the wall? Then with green cleaning, to me, a green cleaning agent is distilled water. <laughs> well, it's distilled water until it hits the wall. Now, what is that stuff coming off the wall? Yeah, that's <laughs> a good point. Know. Yeah, didn't think of it that way, Dieter. It's well, tough. I mean, you know, now am I allowed to use a little mild soap? I always like that, a mild soap solution. And the other thing that I always mention is, you know, no hazardous ingredients. I guarantee you there are a lot of people who do not know what hazardous means. We think of it, oh, that's a hazardous waste disposal site, that's a toxic. Hazard and toxicity have nothing to do with each other. Look it up in the dictionary. Hazardous means there is a possibility that something can happen. There is a chance built in. If something is toxic, it has been tested, and so many milligrams per kilogram of body weight kill you, mm -hmm. which is interesting. And I like to gain the, uh, 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 the, the refresher for me on claims made and occurrence. And obviously, claims made, if you buy it, is cheaper than the occurrence uh, insurance, mm -hmm. which, is an, which is an interesting uh, uh, subject, that whole insurance uh, business. All right. I think that's all I have so far. Well, thank you, Dieter. We'll bring you back for the roundup. Certainly. All right. Dr. Wow, our technical director. Let's go back to Tom Peter. Hello, Tom. Tom, do we have you back? I'm here, yes. Excellent. Tom, we wanted to move into um, chemical concerns and some of these interesting projects you've worked on. And uh, let's start with um, your experience with climates, uh, or clients excuse me, who, who allege to suffer from multiple chemical sensitivity. Uh, let's start by asking a little background. Is it unusual for multiple generations in a family to have this uh, multiple chemical sensitivity? Um, I have not seen that personally. I typically see it as an individual within a household, and I have not seen it with uh, multiple, multiple family members. You know, it's a very uh, unique situation that comes up. Uh, the only reason I, the only reason we really ask the question is we see it a lot. Uh, you know, oh, really? when we take well, I'm sorry, well, I hear it a lot when I take chemical yeah. calls. Uh, you know, uh, I'm reacting, and everyone in the house is reacting, and the dogs reacting, and you know, my my my, my aunts and uncles that came over are reacting, and uh, you know, so on and so forth. So, you know, I was just looking for uh, your input on that. Yeah, it could be a combination of things. It's obviously, it could be a physical uh, response, but it also could be a mental response. And some people think it's psychosomatic, but that that does take a role in, in, into play on any sensitivity. Um, and when somebody says they're sensitive or they smell something, then then they'll say, "Don't you smell it too?" And then they're like, "Yeah, okay, yeah." And so it is, it is a chain reaction in some cases. Well, how do you respond to these concerns about the use of chemicals and, and when you're doing remediation, and, and how do you routinely handle these types of clients? Well, you got to spend some time with them. They're gonna have, you're going to have to gain their trust, and you're going to have to sit down at the kitchen table and sit down and talk with them. You can't just go in there and say, this is what we're going to do, and goodbye. You really have to hold their hand and gain their confidence on what you're going to do in their house and what products you're going to use. And obviously... In some cases, you're going, to, you're going to show them products, data sheets, MSDSs, and so forth. Or if they insist on using one of their products, which I prefer, 
I'll say I'll ask them what product do you want us to use? Do you have one in your home house that you feel comfortable using? And we'll use that product ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, so this this way we're not bringing something new into their environment. Good point. Well, can you talk to us about any specific projects that you've had that were, might be interesting for the listeners? Yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> good and bad. Um, good ones. Um, there was a homeowner who had a mold issue in the basement. And when I met with her for the first time, we were, we were recommended by her insurance company. And when I met with her, she's wearing like two masks. You know, she has like a cloth mask and a mask over a mask because she didn't want to smell anything that I might be wearing. You know, she's very sensitive to colognes or any deodorants or anything like that. And um, so I sat down with her and her husband on the kitchen table and talked about her whole situation. And she was one that insisted that we use a product like a hydrogen peroxide solution when we do our final cleaning of the mold. So I said, when we do the mold cleanup, you know, we're going to have HEPA vacuums, HEPA air scrubbers, and so forth. But we need to wipe down after we're done. And and she insisted on a hydrogen peroxide solution. And I did find one. I didn't go to the um, pharmacy and buy hydrogen peroxide. I went on, on, we have um, some products that are Mm -hmm. hydrogen peroxide, Mm non-fragrance solutions. And that worked out very well. And these people were very happy. And in that case, also, they were concerned about reconstruction because we removed paneling, sheetrock, insulation, and we had to paint. And she found a, a depot, not a home depot, but a, another store that it's an environmental green warehouse that sells green pro- building products, and that's in New Jersey as well. Mm-hmm. And so we had to go and shop for those products. Now, that's where the insurance companies might be concerned. Are these products more expensive than regular products? And yes, they are. And and if the insurance company will accommodate it, they'll pay the extra money to um, satisfy the homeowner. Can you tell us about a mold remediation product or project where remediation chemicals were used and the job kind of went awry? Oh, yeah. I was brought into um, a project down in South Jersey uh, a couple of years ago where a consultant was involved and the homeowners have left their house. Well, they left their house because they had a mold remediation company in their house um, handling mold in the basement. When they were done, they decided to fog the whole house with a product, a biocide or antimicrobial and subsequently contaminated the house with that antimicrobial. The homeowners have not been able to move back into their house because of the odor and the potential health effects or their sensitivity to that product. And um, we were hired to come in and clean their house. Uh, and that, that means we had to remove all soft materials such as, sheet, you know, such as um, carpet, padding, furniture, we pretty much emptied the whole house out and then did a thorough cleaning of the house and then ventilated the house. And even like a year later, after we you know, we did it, she still swore that she still smelled the odor. Hmm. And they have never they have never moved back into their house. They bought another house and they're subsequently selling this house after three years. That's gotta be um, a tough I mean I'm I'm just curious on the fogging issue I, I hear about fogging all the time and a lot of people like to think that's the the best thing they can do after a mold remediation are there any 
circumstances where you would recommend fogging? Um, yes, um, I do, but I don't use it as a cleaning solution. I use it as a more of a physical removal because if you fog a room, it's a fine mist, and it can drop particles down in the room very dramatically. And actually, you know, it's better, almost better than air scrubbing in some cases where you could uh, use that as a final cleaning method. And we, we would use a, a very safe product, and we would fog a room and drop the particles down and then come back the next day and then do our final cleaning. And I've, I've discussed this with some consultants, and they like that idea, as long as you're not using anything that's harsh or dangerous or residual. And it, it is uh, a very effective way of cleaning the air. Um, in other cases, there's fogging involved for deodorization for um, fire damage. Uh, some people have used thermofogs, which is a, a, a device that creates a hot um, flame to, to atomize the, the chemical. And then there's electronic foggers that will work just as well. And these are effective for odor control, um, odor elimination, and in some cases for uh, ventilation systems for uh, odor de deodorization. That's like, uh, I'm sorry, Cliff, you want to? Yeah, no, I, I just wanted to chime in on, on one thing. I think everyone, uh, almost on a daily basis, sees a commercial on television for oust and or other products that are sprayed into the air uh, in an aerosol can, and that is fogging. Uh, those, part right. those droplets, those particles are exactly the same as the particle size that are generated when we take a, a device into the house. And I think in certain situations, you know, this customer may be using oust on a daily basis in her house or some other aerosol-type product. She doesn't perceive that as dangerous. But when she sees a guy walk into her house with a moon suit on, you know, wearing all sorts of respirators and gloves and you know, carrying some sort of fogging device, she sometimes thinks that uh, the danger is much greater, and it's oh, yeah. really pretty much the same. It sounds to me like you also are using, uh, oftentimes in your remediation, you're doing this in a contained area, and you're not just spraying it throughout the whole home? Correct. You certainly don't, I don't spray it throughout a whole house unless it's a fire or smoke odor issue. And also, it's in an unoccupied situation. You do not do any fogging while people or pets are involved in the house. Um, in most cases, it is a basement or a contained area and a well-ventilated area. So and you certainly only do, do this when the client gives you the permission to do this as well? Yes, correct. Okay, yes. okay. Very good. We've, we've, actually, we've actually used that one product. I'm not going to name any names, but that product that contaminated that house um, we've used that product once, uh, maybe eight, seven, eight, seven years ago, and my workers were uncomfortable using that when they were applying it. We've never used it since. Mm -hmm. So it was, you know, could be could be misused very easily, and um, you know, can make my workers unhealth, workers sick, and it could be unhealthy for the building as well. I'm curious, have you done any allergy or asthma type remediation? Well, it's funny how uh, every time we go out to a water job or fire job or mold, you always hear, oh, my family has allergies, my kids have allergies and asthma. It's common, you know, it's just so common that people are saying that right away, that people are, are sensitive to dust. Well, certainly we have cleaned up houses for dust. Um, most of it's a mold issue or, or um, other kind of uh, 
smoke issue that we're cleaning up. So we have to take extra precautions when people tell us they have allergies and asthma and, uh, you know, take extra containment measures and air filtration devices using HEPA, HEPA filtration. Um, so, I mean, almost every job, it seems like it's an allergy or asthma job these days, you know, and, and other restoration contractors would agree with me on that. I'm, I was just curious because we've had a series on home health assessments and people who, you know, and doctors, MDs who are actually recommending that people get their home cleaned up and try to remove as many of these triggers, I guess, as possible. And it seems to be a trend that uh, I thought might be catching on. I wasn't sure if you'd ever run into a project like that where you were specifically cleaning up because there were was cat dander or there was... Uh, oh, yes. Uh, we, actually, that reminds me. We did a case. We did a house, an entire house once. This gentleman in New Jersey was buying a house, and he's highly allergic to cats. So he's buying a house that the former owners had six or seven show cats. Mm. <laughs> so he's buying a house that's highly contaminated with cat dander. Now, how, how do you clean a house and not have a reaction? Well, we had to clean this whole house, top to bottom, uh, ventilation system, everything, including the basement as well. And um, you guys spent some good money cleaning up this house. But it was fortunate that the house was empty. And there was no carpets or anything left. So it was all hard surfaces. So that's the good thing. So this guy moves into the house, and uh, he, I call him up a couple weeks later. I said, how is everything? He's like, you know what? I couldn't sleep that first night I moved into my house. I'm like, here we go. Oh, boy. <laughs> <You know? laughs> He's like, I couldn't sleep because I was worried that I was going to have a reaction, and I did not. He's like, thank you, thank you, thank you for cleaning my house. <laughs> wow, that's great. Wow, that's great to hear. Excellent. Yeah. You know, you do a lot of mold remediation work in your in your company, and let's talk a little bit about addicts. Uh, there can be a couple of problems in addicts, and I'd just like to know how you handle them or how you would recommend our listeners handle them. I guess the first one is what do you do when you get water staining on the wood? Um, you know, How do you handle that? What do you think should be done? And I guess the second is, how do you deal with insulation, you know, that may be present in that attic? Um, you know, should it be removed, uh, covered with additional insulation? Uh, go ahead, two-part question. So water yeah. staining and insulation. <laughs> well, every attic is different, and every customer is different. It depends on what they really want. You know, when I see an attic that's all black with mold and black with water stains, I'm like, I tell the homeowner, first of all, you need to solve the problem, what's causing this, and that is condensation and, and uh, heat loss and so inadequate ventilation. So I said, we could clean it up, but it, you know, it could be just a temporary measure if you're not going to solve the problem. Um, and I also tell them, how clean do you want it? Because every contractor can go up there and start scrubbing the wood down with its disinfectant, and it's still going to have some staining uh, remaining. Uh, these stains are embedded in the wood, and the only way to remove them is with sanding, wire brushes, or in some cases I've seen other contractors using um, ice blasting, which mm -hmm. is a good method, but it needs to be handled very carefully. Um, so if you clean and disinfect, you'll say you're HEPA vacuuming and then scrub everything down on the underside of the roof, and um, then you have stains left. Uh, the homeowner might be happy with that as long as they feel comfortable that it's been cleaned properly, or they might want an application of a coating or an encapsulant to 
to cover up those stains, basically, and, and make it look pretty. Um, the second part of that question is with the insulation. That's very tricky, too. I mean, if you want to do a very good job or 100% job of cleaning that attic, you're going to remove that insulation. Um, a lot of consultants will say, yes, you should remove it. and But then there's a cost factor involved. If the homeowner can afford it, they're going to say, well, all right, let's remove it, clean it, and we'll put in new insulation. Well, when you have the whole attic all cleaned and you have all new insulation, um, after a season or two of uh, springtime, summertime, fall, you're going to have more mold spores than that insulation again is right. from the outside. So everybody knows that that insulation is never going to be mold-free, you know. So there's these attics can be complicated. Cleaning the wood, are you going to leave stains behind? Are you going to cover them up? Uh, the insulation, are you going to remove it or clean it? Or, or, or you know, you can't really clean insulation because those spores are embedded in the fibers. So it all depends, you know. I would say to be 100% or more confident that the attic is clean, definitely remove the insulation and then you can clean the hard surfaces that where the insulation was laying. Thanks. Okay, Tom, I have a question on sewage cleanup, water damage restoration here. What are your uh, what are the common methods you use routinely to clean a water damage restoration? Let's start with just a typical water damage restoration. You talk to the owners, there aren't any concerns about multiple chemical sensitivities or, or allergy reactions. How do you handle the project? For for just water itself? Or, well, let's go with sewage. Uh, all right, sewage, yes. Um, obviously, uh, there's a lot of um, pathogens and bacteria that we're worried about with sewage, sewer water, Category 3 water. Um, we definitely would um, have our guys all suited up. Uh, we, we protect our guys as best we can uh, to extract the water, to uh, flush uh, everything out as much as we can. Um, to remove anything that came in contact with sewage, and that's uh, sheetrock, insulation, wood, uh, some flooring materials if it's wood, and uh, particle boards and so forth. you got to do gross removal and whatever came in contact with sewage. And then afterwards, we would flush everything with an antimicrobial. We would dry the surfaces thoroughly. We would also have a, you know, think about containment and also tracking. You know, I think going up and down people's basements and stairs, you know, stuff is on people's feet. You know, there's sewer water on their on their feet, and you have to think about where you're going to track this stuff, and do you have a proper uh, decon, decon situation where you're going to take your Tyvex off or your boots off before you start walking through somebody's house? Are you going to protect the floors? You know, we, we do protect do protect the people's property and tr for tracking purposes. A lot of times we get there after the homeowners tracked it all over the place. They went down into the basement and they thought it was water, but then they walked through it and they found out, oh, this is sewer water. And then they walked through their kitchen, they walked through their living room. And then those are things that we need to think about cleaning also. You know, sometimes people don't think about where is this stuff tracked to. So after we, we clean, clean everything in the basement, disinfect, we dry it. And then we do a recleaning. Uh, we'll have a vacuum and damp wipe. Not, we don't add a lot of water to it again because we don't want to make it wet. Uh, it's a damp wipe and mop, damp mop with floors. And we want to make sure everything is clean. All right. Before we go to the roundup, Tom, let me just ask a quick question, a follow-up to that. Uh, this was a text yes. question I received from a listener on clearance after sewage remediation. What 
do you recommend or what do you see out there in the field being recommended for verifying that the sewage cleanup was done properly? Well, we would we would recommend um, an independent company to come in to do sampling or inspection and sampling. Um, basically, they have a couple choices, and that would be swab samples or and or uh, air samples for culturable, um, you know, bacteria, uh, E. coli specifically, and um, it's very tricky because you could have anybody pass the job as far as an inspection with their sampling because you're doing a swab sample you're looking at only a few square inches you want to try to think of where's the worst place to sample or best place to sample to represent this basement or this house and um you know that's what it is it's swab samples and uh, and or air samples but most of it's visual inspection and um, you know, obviously moisture readings too to make sure everything is dry now, if sampling comes back and says that there's still contamination and you left um, wood framing behind, that's when you may need to make a determination to remove and or treat the, um, the lumber that's remaining in the basement. In some cases, you may want to just treat it again and maybe that'll disinfect it. But people always say you have like these wood framing on the floor. How do you know it's clean underneath that wood framing? And then when people have concern like that, we would say, all right, let's remove it the only way we can know for sure huh yeah exactly all right let's move on to the roundup guys and round things up Let's round it up here. We've got Dr. Wild back on the line. Hello, Dieter. Maybe we don't have Dieter. <laughs> <laughs> well, doesn't sound like we've got Dieter on the line. I thought Glenn Feldman was going to join us, but I don't see him on here, so I'm just going to take it back to Cliff and see if he has any final questions. I, I, I do. I, I do. Tom, I, I don't want to pick on you about New Jersey, but... Uh, I, I think, you know, New York and New Jersey from surrounding states and the rest of the nation are perceived as being populated by people that have high expectations and also are highly litigious. What sorts of documentation does your firm routinely use to reduce your legal exposure on these different types of projects you do? Well, we, we have a lot of forms and stuff, and but you are correct. We... New Jersey uh, clientele are very particular about things, you know. <laughs> and if you say you have a water damage and we could restore your carpet, they're like, "Yes, we we want that carpet removed." <laughs> There's no restoration. It's like you remove it, give me new, and I want to make sure it's it's that way, or we're getting another contractor. <laughs> um, we do have forms, and um, most importantly is authorization forms for people for us to do work in their house mm -hmm. and also um, documentation that whether or not their insurance company is going to cover this or not, they would be responsible for payment. You know, we, we are very concerned about payment. <laughs> sure. uh, we don't want to get stuck doing all this without getting paid. Sure. In other cases, um, if we do make a recommendation that we say these 
these floors or these walls are still wet. We want to keep our drying equipment in there a couple of days longer. And the homeowner's like, no, 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 I don't want any more equipment here. It's too noisy. We can't sleep and all this. I want it out of here. So now we're looking at a, a release of liability. We have a form that would say, you know, as per the homeowner's request, they requested that we remove this equipment even though the building materials are not dry at this time and then therefore we're not responsible for any health issues, fungal growth, or ensuing damage to the property. And this is something that will protect us. Um, obviously, as much paperwork as you can produce to protect you, the better, but there's always the chance it's still, still a legal case, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but we always stand by our work anyway. If there's any issue with somebody, we will definitely um, follow up with it and make sure um, we stand by our work and, and, and complete every job correctly to make sure that the homeowner is satisfied. And that keeps us out of trouble. Once you start getting stubborn, I believe, if you're stubborn and you start fighting with these people, that's when it becomes uh, a legal issue. But if you're willing to work with homeowners to satisfy them, that'll keep you out of trouble in the long run. Tom, I have one final question. What are insurance companies saying out there? I mean, what's going on as far as mold, sewage, uh, chemicals, anything that's changed over your tenure in the in the business? Any significant changes in how they're handling things? Um, not so much over the last years. I haven't seen much. We always have the battles on sewage claims, whether or not we need to remove certain materials, you know, some I've heard some insurance adjusters say you keep the sheetrock. I'm like, no, <laughs> this is sewage. The sheetrock's got to go, or else we're not doing the job, you know. And you got to put your foot down sometimes. But when it comes to like wood materials and so forth, that's you know they say, why do you need to remove the paneling? Why can't you just sanitize and dry it? Because they're trying to keep their costs down, you know. But I think they're more aware as more aware these days that this could be a legal issue with any kind of bacteria or mold issue. And, um, you know, they want to try to do the right thing. And, you know, we have a reputation of working with the right insurance companies that take care of the, the, their clients as well. And um, that keeps us out of trouble. Okay. We always but like to. Nothing, nothing much new. Okay. No. Well, we always like to conclude uh, with, with two questions. Uh, the first one, is there anything that you'd like to add? Um, any questions that we didn't ask that you wished we had? Um, no, I'm just, you just hit me with a lot of questions. It's <laughs> <laughs> my job. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, no, not really. There's so much more to talk about, but there's, you know, there's a lot of topics that you guys cover over the years. So. All right. And how can listeners contact you if they'd like? If that's... Um, that's fine. 800-634-0261 is our, our phone number for our office. And I have an email. It's tpeter at irs-restoration.com. And uh, that's fine with me. Email me or give us a call if you have any questions. And I'd be happy to answer them. And I do answer a lot of questions from homeowners throughout, throughout the state, just people who are concerned about mold or chemical issues or the things that we discussed today. And, um, you know, I do that free charge over the phone. <laughs> All right. Well, Tom, I'll tell you, we really appreciate you joining us. And uh, before we go, I want to make sure that we thank you for joining us and thank Brian McFarland for the Insurance Minute. I also want to let listeners know that next week we're going to have 
Dr. Rachel Hertz, the author of The Scent of Desire. I think you'll find that to be a fascinating interview. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the scent of smell that a lot of people don't uh, spend as much time thinking about as um, maybe they should. The book is fascinating. I also want to say thanks to my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. It's always a pleasure, John. The wingman, Chris Boisel at the controls. Our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, and most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.